Welcome to the Next Level Brands podcast, where we share stories about the food and CPG world with experts in the trenches about how to build a successful brand today. Now, your host, G. Stephen Clear. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us today on the Next Level Brands podcast, brought to you as always by the crew and cast at nextlevelbrands.com. If you have a growing firm in food, beverage, or health and wellness, please check out the services offered at nextlevelbrands.com. We have founder coaching, fractional marketing, and sales resources, and a whole lot more. More information available at nextlevelbrands.com. That's next with two X's. Take your brand to the next level with Next Level Brands. Well, I'm Steve Clear. Greetings to fellow entrepreneurs out there. Welcome to the podcast. And today we are super excited to be doing another round two, where we welcome back a guest from the earlier days of the show. Joining me today is Michael Movitz, managing partner of the Movitz Group, an advisory group of industry experts that help early stage conscious brands raise capital and build go-to-market strategies. He is, of course, also one of the founding partners of Brandjectory. It's a one-of-a-kind relationship building platform for early stage CPG founders and investors to discover each other. And we're going to talk more about that today. Michael's CPG career includes 16 years with spins and various senior level positions, natural products division of the JM Smucker Company, and as a natural products broker, all sides of the industry. Welcome back to the program, Michael. Thank you. It's great to be with you again. So I I went back this morning to make sure to take a look. We did our last podcast together in October of 2020. And clearly, (laughs) clearly a different world. And and very excited. Brandjectory was pretty new at that point, but for folks who who haven't had the chance to to go to Brandjectory and take a look around, this is still, I think, almost one of a kind platform for getting together startup CPG founders and teams with investors. Tell tell us a bit more, Michael, about what it is, how it works. Sure. Well, I had been doing advising and consulting, as you said, through the Movitz Group for about, well, at this point, it's been almost seven years. And from day one, every entrepreneur who I was speaking to was asking, how do I meet investors? How do I know who's a good fit? What do they want to hear? How do I keep them updated? And uh, and so I'd make email email introductions to investors, but clearly there was a bigger need. So I fast forward, I met my now co-founding partners. Tom Alengo and Susan Bryanton of Litchfield Fund and JPG Resources. And we launched Brandjectory in beta in January of 2020. We had been building it for a little bit before that, but the pandemics accelerated our, our plans a little bit. Yeah. So we launched, we launched in January 2020 and then went officially live in just, just about a year ago from, from the, the date that we're recording this in, in August of 2021. And the focus is on helping, as you said, early stage CPG founders connect with early with CPG investors, and then also helping those founders to prepare to raise capital. And so yeah. we do that through a combination of both an online platform and an offline facilitated virtual meetings. And that gets everybody together sort of on the same page. It it does. Well, it, first with regards to the to the onboarding and the preparation, we have a very extensive knowledge base at this point. There's over 215 articles that we've written about building an investable CPG business, navigating the capital raise process. So it's across 65 topics and has been lauded by a number of investors and industry experts because it is really the first consolidated aggregated repository for capital raising information specifically for CPG as extensive as as this library is. 
So it's a common, so we start there. The brand profile on the platform is investor centric. So it tells an investor what they want to know, which is different from all the consumer facing information that a brand might have out there that an investor might become aware of a brand through. And then with within the profile itself, there are help text and guides that identify what's being asked, why it's important to an investor, some examples of good answers. And then finally, we do a review of the profile with the founder so that we can provide observations and recommendations to help the brand put their best foot forward. Um, so all of that occurs prior to the brand being live on the system. Right. And then we actually uh, customized a, uh, a dating site. So the, <laughs> um, yeah, well, I mean, it works in it uh, all yeah. facets of life, right? So what? So when brands join, they're actually presented with investors that best meet their profile based on alignment of the two, of the two parties. So brands can reach out to investors that they're presented with. Investors can search for brands at any time using seven different criteria. And there's communication capabilities on the platform. There's social media aspects so that brands can post updates about their story as they grow. You think about a lot of a lot of founders like to post their wins on LinkedIn. That goes out to the public. It's seen by competitors. And, you know, so the brand directory system is really just meant to go between brands to investors. Brands don't even see other brands on the platform. So that's all that's all part of the yeah. platform. Yeah. And and, and that, pro- that provides just to, I mean, just to me, an incredibly useful service, both from the intellectual property standpoint of what you guys have put up there, but also this ability to interact and kind of help guide folks who you know are, are are looking for capital and not you know you and I've worked a while in this not every entrepreneur that's going to have a successful company really understands necessarily about fundraising and some of that some of that criteria so very 100, very yeah 100% and that's actually one of the things that that you know over the last call a couple of years since we even started in beta that we've learned is you know every founder is starting from a different place many founders are first time founders first time raisers there are some founders that you know have well-prepared materials, either because they themselves put them together through their own research or their own expertise and skills, or they've had you know professional agencies or groups work with them to put them together. But in all cases, so so they're all coming at this from a, a different context. But in the case of you know why they're on brand directory, it's because they need to meet more investors, whether they have a network that they've tapped out or they don't have any network at all. At all, right? And we can help. We can help support them, educate them, and connect them, depending on where they are. And I'm sure you and 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 Tom and Susan started brand directory with a business plan. So, how does the brand directory today look compared to that business plan? It's a great question, and and it surprised even us. <laughs> I, you know, originally we thought we could bring a lot of efficiency and automation to the process of connecting and, and educating, uh, which means that we were intending originally to rely more on the platform. And what we discovered uh, pretty quickly was that, and where we are today, is that we're reliant less on the platform for those connections as much as we thought we would be. Okay. And we're actually getting a tremendous amount of value from the personal virtual interactions that we facilitate on a very regular basis. So, you know, of course, there's just no replacing human interaction and connection. You can learn about something or somebody from you know, digitally, so to speak. Right. But ultimately, you need to have that conversation. You need to be able to connect, relate, develop, you know, et cetera. 
And so that's that's why that's basically we went from assuming that we would be more of a SaaS platform to a combination of some tech and more human element. Wow. Yeah. That's great. It's it, it, it's it was thinking about that in terms of when you started talking about the introductory emails and kind of this idea of okay, when people want to get to know each other better and if I'm an investor or I'm a founder and I'm who's this person's going to write me a check or whatever that it needs to go beyond beyond matching up the numbers. But then this year, you also then took that approach and decided to do basically a slam pitch for brands out there. Can you talk a little bit about how that got started and how it went? Back in the spring of 2022, we were working with Naturally New York on their initial pitch slam. And Brandjectory was the application portal for that pitch for that pitch slam. And so for a founder to apply to the Naturally New York, and actually it was Naturally New York and Specialty Food Association pitch slam in conjunction with the Specialty Food uh, Summer Fancy Food Show in New York in, it was either late June or July, I can't remember. Yep. Yeah. So for brands to apply to the pitch slam, um, they completed the brandjectory profile. And because there's a lot of best practice standards in there about how investors are looking or what kind of information investors are looking for from brands. So the organizations used our platform for that application process. And then the judges and the review panel basically used that platform to assess and, and narrow down from the total application pool down to the finalists. Down to the finalists. And so, and and after going through that process, we thought, you know what, we've already got the our a large base of subscribers who already have these profiles built. So, and and we're starting to build some credibility and reputation around the capital raise process. Perhaps it's time for us to have our own pitch slam. And so my co-founder and partner, Susan Bryanton, raised the idea to us collectively in a meeting back in the spring. And we had never actually put on a pitch slam. So my first reaction was, guys, this is going to be a boatload of work. <laughs> but But we obviously you know, need to do it. And it could be very valuable for the brands, but we want to do something different. We don't just want to pick a winner at the end. Our whole central force is about educating brands and founders so that they can continue to improve upon how they're interacting with investors and continue to make uh, each interaction better to improve their chances for raising capital. So we wanted to use the process as an educational tool, not just, you know, you're in or you're out. Right. So we had amazing response and people raising their hand left and right to want to participate and support this. We had 25 investors that acted as our committee and judges for reviewing the applications, coaching and mentoring the finalists, and then judging the finalists both in a practice session as well as in the final event itself. We had, uh, I think, 12 primary sponsors who contributed $20,000 in cash in total that got passed through 100% to the to the finalist. We did not keep a dime of that. We wanted it to be to benefit the 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 winner. And then we had 25 service providers across the industry provide discounted and free services to both the winner and the runner up so that the total package ended up being $100,000 in cash and, and discounted services to both the winner and and the runner up. And so we we were so in the end it went off incredibly well and we we had 56 applicants and basically the application process was you 
as a subscriber, a premium subscriber on Brandectory, you completed your profile, we've done your review. If you've right. done your review before you're live, all you need to do is send us an email and say, I want in. And that's that's what we did. And we got 56 people that said, sign me up. And then, like I said, we had 14 investors that reviewed those 56 applications. And we, we used an objective scorecard across 10 different criteria to evaluate those brands right. on a point system. And in addition to the point system, the investors reviewing the applications also provided three points of what, what stood out as great and what stood out as needing some work. And we sent that information and that feedback back to all of the founders as, again, as our intention was to try to help these founders learn from the process and continue to be better. And so the, and then the five finalists were chosen and it was a really, really hard process. There were a lot yeah. of incredibly strong brands that applied. And the the winner was Olira, a Greek, organic Greek breakfast biscuit. Yep. And the yep. runner up was Kusa Tea and Coffee, a very innovative instant tea and coffee. And I just have to say the other the other three finalists were True Made Foods, Go Nanas, and Fabulish. All five okay. were incredible contenders and great founders, great brands. And we were proud to present them out to the industry. There was 125 people that attended the event. It was held virtually back in the middle of September. And we've now been approached by a number of bigger organizations that have interest in leveraging our structure, our configuration, sure. our best practice standards to doing something similar for their customers. So so folks out there at, at home, you need to visit Brandjectory and you need to be prepared to get in the next pitch because you're crazy if you don't. <laughs> we are planning another one in the spring. Awesome. That's really good. Michael, let me ask you about, you know, there's been so much that's happened in, in the two years since we last talked. And, you know, what's sort of the state of capital now and raising capital, especially for startup food, beverage, and wellness? Because two years ago, we were sexy. I mean, you know, it was like there was a pandemic, but we were, you know, we were hot. Has that cooled off at all? And, and what, what's going on today in that in that world? Yeah, great question. Food and beverage and CPG in general is definitely still hot and sexy, but what's hotter and sexier is a path to profitability. And so I will let, let me let me unpack that. As as we sit here today in early October, uh, inflation is very strong, unemployment is low, but the potential for a recession is very high, and supply chains seem to be becoming a little bit more moderated or or yep. equilibrium. But what's what's happening is that because the market, the stock market is also reflecting the uncertainty in the economy in general, a lot of investors are holding back. They're holding back from making new investments because of the uncertainty or and or they are becoming much more um, rigid and strict about their qualifications to get to that investment conversation. The, there are still four principles that, at the end of the day, are our minimum seat to get the seat at the table, and that's the quality of of the team, the differentiation of the product, the market opportunity, and number four is business fundamentals, and that means basically you have the sustainable financials, and you know that means good margins, path to profitability. You know when you're going to break even, or if you're past break even. You know, you you have a good grasp on on your cash flow, right? Yeah, and and let me you know say that the the listing of team first is very important. I, you know, again, I've worked with some investors who have 
looked at a company that has a current product line and it maybe is not quite, you know, what, but they look at the team and they go, okay, so these guys are going to make it. If not this, they're going to make it on something else. So let's see if we can improve this or we can direct it and, and really, really get it going. I mean, that's 100%. Really, yeah, very, very important. The other thing, which I think is, is interesting now too, is relates to number two, which is product differentiation. And in, in the better for you space, which was a smaller space three, four years ago, suddenly has accelerated. And I, I saw a very scary mock-up of what the Canadian government wants new food and beverage labeling to look like. And up in the upper right-hand corner, taking up about 25% of the page is a nutritional panel. Mm. And below the new, on the front of the package, and below the nutritional panel, if any of the items within the nutritional panel exceed the government's recommended daily allowances, it's highlighted. Mm. You know, wow, that's not going to be good for Oreos. Okay. Not, you know, it's like this is this is different. This is, you know, and I'm not saying that the United States is going to adapt that in any form, but we we do have the you know highlighted added sugars now, and that's put you know, a lot of people in a little bit of a spin to try to find some substitutes that don't add 38, 40% of your daily sugar in an added form. Yeah. I, you know, it, the, those regulations may not be good for Oreos, but they're good for the consumer. And at the end of the day, that's who has to, you know, drive the conversation. I, I am not talking, I, I am all for making profits but I'm also about transparency and authenticity and supporting humans for where they, you know, for what they need. And, you know, what corporations need versus what, you know, humans need for survival may not always align. So I think it's okay to have, um, it's okay to have that information more prominent so that consumers can make an educated decision. Decision about, yeah. I, I think historically the corporate, you know, corporate doesn't, necessarily jive with uh, what's going to be best for the for the planet. Speaking of which, sustainability, an area, again, sort of top of mind because Walmart has recently come out and done some more talking about what their goals and stuff are going to be. And, they, and I loved the fact that, you know, it said they're going to be relying a lot upon their vendors. And I'm thinking, oh, well, you know, they could do that tomorrow. They could, be, they could be, you know, basically is, is get rid of the plastic, give me recyclable cardboard at at least 30% post-consumer or I'm not buying the product. <laughs> how about that? So there's a lot of that push. Uh, how, how do you feel like, I mean, sustainability was really pretty, it had some momentum. I think it dropped a little bit during the pandemic. If we can call this post-pandemic, I don't know as we can, but, but you know, but that took a little bit, but, but that's coming back. Do you see that being a factor in there? Yeah, there's no question. I, I, I would, after just attending the Expo E show in Philadelphia last week, what my sense coming out of that show is that organic was, uh, the last 20 years were all about organic and building, first of all, defining organic, developing standards, right, and, and then generating awareness and creating more access to more organic foods. The next 20 years are going to be all about sustainability. And there's no question that from you know a, a product standpoint, those are just starting to emerge with some, I saw a brand, I'm sorry, I can't think of the name of it right now, but I think it was a cracker brand where they said that, you know, that their product was made in a carbon neutral manufacturing way. 
But sustainability is also incredibly comprehensive because it it encompasses carbon, food waste, right, uh, right. social social welfare, animal welfare, environmental welfare, and and others. And so, I mean, it's it's very broad. And so, you know, companies can think about uh, recycling. I'm sorry, I should have mentioned also recycling, reducing. So companies can think about how, you know, any any of these levers can resonate for, you know, consumers, but, you know, putting them all together is, of course, you know, the holy grail. And I think that's what a lot of companies will be attempting to do. But it is the future. In fact, there was one session, I can't remember if it was the state of the industry or another session, but New Hope had presented a, a survey slide where uh, they asked, I think it was five and six-year-old kids what their career aspirations were and yeah it's it's kind of funny to think about career aspirations at five and six years old because you know it used to be cowboys and, and yeah. whatever but and th- their statistic was really amazing 85 percent, something like 85 percent of the those kids said they want to save the world and so our future consumers are basically going to be focused on this no matter what and of course, you know, we're starting to see the effects of, of climate change and things like that. But clearly, this conversation is beginning to emerge on a much more mainstream platform. And when you have large businesses that are also starting to embrace it, it it's only going to become more powerful and and it's and it's essential. Yeah, I think the the what's happened is the conversations about that have elevated to C-suite in a lot of larger corporations. Mm-hmm. And they have taken the idea that we need to get, we need to get in step. We need to get on board. They're going back down to senior management, brand management and saying, Hey guys, gals, you gotta, you gotta make this right. Okay. So let's do this. Let's do this. Let's do that. And the brand managers are pulling their hair out because their margins are going to be reduced considerably in, at least in the beginning in doing this and uh, kind of a little thing there. But the other thing I wanted to ask you about was sort of an interesting phenom and that is where there has been acquisitions by larger CPG corporations of smaller brands that then, like a bad case of indigestion, they just can't seem to deal with it and either shut them down, sell them back to the founder or whatever. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that and why, why that occurs? Well, I, you know, I think it's an admirable intention by the large CPGs to want to try to incorporate and, and maximize the opportunity for these brands. It's it plays both, you know, from a it plays into their strategy for for you know selling more better for you products. And you know, they also see opportunities for optimizing the brand's efficiencies and financial opportunity. But you know, sometimes it just doesn't get to the point where they need or want it to be, you know, based on their existing system. So I think it's it's one of those hard things where, you know, multi-billion multinational companies may not be able to, you know, work with brands to past a certain point. A lot some have. I mean, you know, you take General Mills and, and Annie's. I mean, you know, that's been clearly yep. a success story. And and there's others. But you know, it doesn't always work that way. So when when you have wonderful brands that were built and then nurtured to hundreds of millions of dollars, but doesn't fit the portfolio or the the needs of the CPG anymore, then it is great to see the our industry go in and you know try to maintain and grow the brand you right. know for a way that fits for you yeah. know their 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 goals. Because clearly, there's consumers out there that that want 
you know, those brands, those products. I mean, the fact that they get to hundreds of millions is is important. I can't speak to, you know, the on the financials if the if the profitability is is, you know, as much as it could or should be. Maybe, you know, whether or not it fits for the CPG or whether or not it's viable, that's that's a totally different thing. But I got to believe that if there's other people that are coming in to, to buy the brand, they see the opportunity. Yeah, I think there's a a tendency to to say in making an acquisition, we're going to be able to apply efficiencies and whatever else. And But in doing that can end up just fundamentally changing the product. Mm-hmm. So and then they wonder why the sales don't meet the expectations. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, it's good not, point. not really the same thing, you know, and you have that. And I think, you know, a little bit of credibility as to it, not that not the general mills can't make a better for you product. They certainly can any, you know, and they do make some, but, you know, to, to t- take over a product that has a, a really good brand story and a very outspoken founder and whatever, or founding team, whatever, and then try to put that into the portfolio is not, not an easy, you know, easy thing to do. For, for sure. And just one, one observation too, is that, you know, better for you, how, however we want to define that, depending on on what we're defining comprises somewhere between 15 to 30 percent you know of sales in the marketplace well that means that somewhere between 85 70 to 85 percent of sales are still you know conventional products right and so while we continue we need to continue to innovate and create the and pioneer these better for you products and processes and systems you know the the getting to that 15 to 30% shares is admirable, but, you know, the way we tip the scales is by also, you know, incremental benefits that are built into or worked into the existing CPG brands. So they may not be, you know, huge step changes like, you know, a natural or organic or sustainable brand might be, but if they're improving, you know, the macro profile, macronutrition profile on a product or their packaging or their processing or their supply or something like that, I mean, the, the you know, uh, a, yeah. a CPG having a CPG changing its packaging for its product line can have more of an impact than many entire brands, you know, in our industry. So, you know, th- these are things to be applauded. Of course, we always would like to see more, but I think they're, they're good steps and they're, they do help. Um, one of the things, Michael, that I, I, I get conversations about in regard to raising capital and all those things is founders being very concerned about diluting their equity. So uh, how, do, how do you advise or talk to people who may not have a trust fund to build a brand, but who are worried, hey, I'm, you know, am I going to continue to run this thing? How does that work? Is is the question? Am I going to continue to run this thing? Or, or? no, no. The no question would be: is, is is you know working with a with a founder with people who are coming to Brandjectory who are concerned about raising capital because it's diluting their ownership of what they've started, their baby. Sure, there there's no easy answer to that. the The reality is that if the there are there are alternative sources for financing, they may be grants, they may be loans, they may be you know, to the extent that a person might have friends and family in their network, or I'm sorry, accessible to them that have, mm-hmm. you know, the, the funds, those are, those are ways to do it. And, you know, as a brand is truly growing, it's, 
you have to get certain thresholds of, you know, 250, 500, a million, you know, to get the attention or the willingness of uh, traditional debt lenders. You know, there's there's asset-based lending, which means financing your inventory, your POs, your receivables, things like mm-hmm. that, but that can be very expensive. Credit cards are also very expensive. And so, yeah. you know, to, to try to to try to use as many options as possible before you have to give away equity is is important. Of course, the the question you don't want to take um, too much money too soon, and you know it's not uncommon for food and beverage brands to require two hundred thousand plus, you know, to kind of get off the ground. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's important for for would be founders or founders that are just getting started to know, you know, that's the landscape and and what they're working with in order to make it happen. And if and, and if the financial resources are not available, maybe doing some work first on figuring out where those finances will come from before you get too far into it and then find yourself diluted out of out of you know control of the company before you're even at $10 million in sales. There are there are plenty of investors who actually would be concerned about the founder being the minority uh, owner in the company before a certain point. Oh, right. um, and yeah. so, so a lot of yeah. investors may not want to invest if that's going to be the case. So, you know, there's there there isn't an easy answer, but there are there are avenues to pursue. We, we yeah, we, we have an industry that has an arithmetic problem, and that is is that as you're successful, you're going up the funnel, right? Mm-hmm. So you go from the 20 stores to the 200, the 200 to the 2000, and the capital intensity required to do that is just I'm amazing. You know, I mean, just, and it, it goes kind of just like that. It's like, you know, you're able to hold everything with, maybe you have a co-manufacturer, you have a small plant or whatever you're in. Everything's fine. Then all of a sudden one day, you know, Sprouts wants you in every store and it's like, what do I do now? Or mm-hmm. where do I go? You know, which is somewhat unique to, I think somewhat unique in businesses that that all of a sudden happens with such I think one, if I may, I think retailers are beginning, retailers and distributors are beginning to understand the the needs, the cash flow needs of founders a little bit better. But I think it's incumbent upon the founder to identify to the retailer or distributor who wants to place that kind of an order that will put that much of a cash strain on the founder or on the business to demonstrate to the to the retailer distributor. I want to do this, but here's the timing and here's how much this is going to require. You know, if we could, if you can extend terms for me, if you can help me through this process, maybe defer trade spending or the free fill out to six months from now or a year from now or something like that, trying to get creative and in, in finding a solution to make it work. Because if, if it's so one-sided that the brand is put, you know, on the brink and risk of, of going bankrupt just trying to satisfy that order, then that doesn't help the retailer. Yeah, I I, I think even the even the guys at, at at Costco will, with newer brands and brands new to Costco, will in fact ask them that. You know, what is what it would what would this order be in a percentage of your mm-hmm. this year's production, and mm-hmm. are you able to, you know. Yeah, because it's a good question because yep. a lot of people go out on extra under the net. And so before we wrap up, we need to make sure everybody knows how to get to Brandjectory. Michael, tell us. Brandjectorynow.com, B-R-A-N-D-J-E-C-T-O-R-Y, now.com. Okay. And and get prepared for that spring pitch slam. 
There's no better time to be starting to talk, meet, and build relationships with investors than before you need the money. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it takes time. Out there. It takes many, many months. If if you're a founder or team member out there that's obviously aware of capital needs and stuff, I, I suggest you you visit Brandjectory, you take a look at the stuff that Tom, Susan, and Michael have put together because it's it's pretty awesome and it's a it's a great thing you guys have done. And I'm I'm real glad it's been been successful. Thank you. You might remember when we come to sort of the end of the program, we like to put our guests on the spot. We have a little segment that we call Words to Grow By, and it can be a phrase, it can be a word, it can be a quote or whatever, whatever you want, but basically something that you want to leave with as wisdom for fellow entrepreneurs. You got something for us? Yes. I am always one about uh, prioritization. And so one of the things that struck me recently was a quote. I don't know the source of it, but it is, there are seven days in the week and someday isn't one of them. <laughs> oh, I like that. Yeah. Seven days in the week, someday isn't one of them. That's awesome. Yeah. Very good. Well, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're busy, and uh, but this is, uh, this is an area of the business that you know founders and team members really need to know a lot more about. Thank you, Stephen. And thank you for all the work that you do for the industry too. Hey, no problem. Happy to do it. It's a, it's it's actually a lot of fun. We complain about it sometimes, but it's fun, isn't it? <laughs> it is. <laughs> All right. We'll talk to you again. Thanks so much, by the way. And, and thanks for the rest of you out there for joining us today on the Next Level Brands podcast. Thanks as well to nextlevelbrands.com for production assistance. We're always grateful for feedback and comments we get. If you have an idea for a show topic or a special guest, please feel free to let us know. I'm Steve Clear, and we'll see you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Next Level Brands podcast with G. Stephen Clear. Learn more at next with two X's, levelbrands.com. While you're there, be sure to sign up for the Next Level Brands email list or subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode.